Hello and welcome to One Week Only. I'm Connor, and this is a very special interview for the One Week Only podcast. Uh, we're talking with uh, sort of iconic Grindhouse producer Sam Sherman. He was a very big uh, uh, part of the uh, you know drive-in cinema era of the '60s and '70s, making such kind of a uh, uh, horror classics as uh, Dracula vs. Frankenstein, Brain of Blood, the Blood Island series. Working alongside his uh, longtime director Al Adamson. And uh, he's he, he's returning to cinemas this summer because he's doing a special uh, run of drive-in screenings across the country. Uh, as you know, you might have heard, uh, due to the shutdown with COVID-19, uh, with only drive-in cinemas as the only cinemas still open right now, there's sort of a resurgence of drive-ins. There's an uptick in popularity. And this is the perfect time to um, play some old movies there, the classic films, because we're running out of new films. So... Sam is bringing out his his collection of films to uh, return to the drive-in cinema and uh, find a whole new audience. And I think it's a great idea, and I'm, I'm really excited to see people adapt in new ways to this to this shutdown and see how we can still entertain people and have a good time at the movies. Uh, so I was very happy to talk to Mr. Sherman about uh, his career, how he started off as you know in film school, but also just as a film fan, a collector, a writer, about an interviewer, and how he got into movies and um, uh, his memories of that kind of that the end of the the, glo- the golden days, those the heyday of the sixties and seventies, what that meant to him, working with actors like Lon Chaney Jr. and other kind of Hollywood uh, character actors and legends. And uh, why he's bringing back the drive-in experience this year. So here's my interview with uh, film producer Sam Sherman. Hi, Connor. How are you today? I'm very well. Um, now, Sam, uh, you have a, a long uh, film career uh, as, a, as a producer and writer and many other roles. So I want to ask first, how did you get into movies? What inspired you to get into the film business? I'm just a big movie fan. That's it. I just uh, grew up going to movies, collecting movies, watching movies on television. I'm just uh, a movie fanatic. That's what fan is. It's derivation of the word fanatic. I'm a fanatic of so many types of movies, and uh, I just uh, wanted to get into that industry. I said, hey, I want to be in this. How can I do this? (laughs) And everybody said, uh, why don't you go and study to get a real job and do something real? I said, the movie industry is real. That's where I want to be. I want to do that. I, I collected movies and studied movies and go to the movies and everything is movies. So I um, was uh, born in New York City and grew up there and uh, went to the City College of New York uh, Institute of Film Techniques and I studied uh, film production, editing, history, everything about film, uh, and a lot of my own studies of my own. I don't know, I got various jobs in the industry. I uh, started as a projectionist, then I went on to be uh, repairing old fil- uh, film prints and negatives, and then from there I got to be an assistant film editor. I just kept working my way up, and... Uh, I then uh, contacted James Warren, who had started Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, and told him I had a lot of horror photos I could rent to him, and I started renting horror photos to Famous Monsters. 
And then he asked me if I could write. I said, yeah, I am a writer. And he had me uh, ghosting stories for Fari Ackerman for Famous Monsters. So it just kind of went on and on and on. And then when I was 22, I felt I wasn't progressing far enough. And I asked my parents if they would give me some money so I could go to Hollywood. And uh, my mother, who's an intellectual assistant principal, she felt it was crazy. <laughs> but my father believed in me, and he believed in what I was doing. He said, I, I, I want to back you. I want to back him. And I want him to do what he wants. And went out to Hollywood for almost three months and met all kinds of people, stayed with Fari Ackerman, went and met Boris Karloff and Roger Corman and this and that all over the place doing all kinds of things, never knowing where it would lead. And uh, I knew people at the major studios. I figured that's the place to be. And so I visited uh, Warner's. I visited uh, Paramount and other places, always looking for where I might have a job or I might do something. And none of that went anywhere. But by the end of the trip, I met a silent movie director who... uh, I was interested in his career, but then Denver Dixon, he had come here from Australia where he had made the first Western in 1910. And uh, very interested to meet him. I didn't meet him until the last week of my trip. And he and I just hit it off, and I met his son, Al Adamson. Uh-huh. And uh, Al was uh, booking girl singers like uh, Vicki Carr and Tacey Robbins, and he ran a nightclub in the San Fernando Valley called the Mutiny, but he had no interest in uh, making pictures. He had made one failed film that Denver directed called Halfway to Hell. I had no interest in that, but he was a very nice fellow in a suit and a tie. Oh, yes, Mr. Sherman, very pleased to meet you and all that. And later he became kind of a very casual guy in a fringe buckskin jacket and cowboy boots. <laughs> Things changed. But uh, I went back to New York, and Denver asked me if I would help him with foreign sales he was doing and other things. And I started representing him, and he and I hit it off, and we worked together. And when Al wanted to make a picture, he said, don't show it to anybody in L.A. They're going to take you. You go to New York to see Sam Sherman. He's the only one you're to work with. And so Denver put... Al and myself together and said we ought to have our own distribution company. And then many years later, we formed Independent International Pictures Corporation with Dan Kennis. And we made a number of films before that and then made Satan Sadus, which started the company. And we just kept on rolling. What do you feel about Al that made him a great partner to work with for so many different films? Well, first of all, um, what made him a great partner was being a great person. I've had, I have a sister, but I never had a brother. But Al was like a brother to me. And uh, he was truthful, hardworking, enthusiastic, and liked working with me and liked being a friend. And it was just a nice, nice relationship. And, of course, it was... Cut short many years later by his murder, which was a disaster for certainly for me and for everybody else who knew him. 
But prior to that, his wife had died, and that was kind of sad. But uh, Pal's just a great guy, and uh, I treasure all my years working with him. It was great. How do you feel about the recent documentary about Al Adamson and the restoration of all your films you made with him? Well, we're very fortunate that my friend David Searing, who was one of the heads of AMC Cable Network, that he believes in me and my company and the pictures we made and everything. And he got David Gregory of Severin Films involved with me and Independent International uh, to digitally HD restore our films, A, B, do this documentary on Al. And uh, he got every available person he could find connected to our films, interviewed on camera, and uh, put a lot of money and effort into it, not knowing where it was going to go. I mean, I'm going to hand it to David Gregory. He's very gutsy, and uh, he did a great job with the documentary, and I feel it was a wonderful thing. It's kind of long overdue, <laughs> but it was a wonderful thing. Now, I feel a lot of people talk about like, you know, the 60s and 70s as kind of a golden age in Hollywood. How was it for you? What are your favorite memories of making movies during that time? Well, it was the last of the golden age. The golden age of Hollywood really was from maybe 1920 to 1950 or 1960. And I just dreamt of being in Hollywood and making films and working with favorite actors, things like that. I never thought it would happen. But I said... Uh, you know, why not dream? You know, dream big. You never know what could happen if you don't believe in yourself and you don't believe things can happen. And they don't happen. But if you go ahead and put effort into it, they can happen. And so I was luckily at a time that things were possible. There were drive-in theaters around. They needed product. The major studios that were always competing with the independents, they were kind of on a downturn with a lot of expensive films that were over budget and that didn't make money for them. And they didn't believe in drive-in theaters. They believed in the indoor theaters and they looked at the drive-ins as strictly uh, last run. They'd rent the film for $25. They didn't believe in them. But it took them many years to learn drive-ins were making big, big uh, figures, big grosses. So um, we had an opportunity to uh, kind of slide in there. And uh, the one thing I felt I wanted to uh, use uh, classic actors so that our pictures would not just look like uh, inexpensive films made in the boonies somewhere with all unknowns that we had made. Hollywood-type pictures, and uh, tried to keep that policy as much as possible. So we made pictures with well-known actors, and Satan Sadist starring Russ Tamlin was a great example, and I took that all over the country, screening it for all the theaters and uh, exhibitors and whatever have you, and they looked at the picture as a great film. It was just amazing. I couldn't believe that Russ Tamlin would have been one of the stars of West Side Story, mm -hmm. would be in that picture. But it 
elevated the film to a higher level and enabled us to get it booked all over the country. That's how we started the company. And you also worked with Lon Chaney Jr., Angelo Versito, and uh, Jake Carroll Nash. So a lot of great kind of character actors from Hollywood. How was it to work with them? Well, like everything, uh, it was an opportunity that we were looking to seize upon. We had done uh, some films with John Carradine and other well-known people who had been in horror films, and I was always looking for people that had been in horror films who were classic actors, and so we had that opportunity. I mean, the funny story is Angelo Rosito, who was a little person who had worked as the sidekick of Bela Lugosi in several films, I wanted him in the film. It was a part of a dwarf that Al had worked on in the picture. And I said, well, I'd like to use Angelo Rosito. He hasn't been around in years. Well, where is he? I said, well, I heard he had a um, newsstand on Hollywood Boulevard. I don't know where to find him. Otherwise, he wasn't listed with the Screen Actors Guild. Sal walked up and down Hollywood Boulevard looking for Angelo Rosito's newsstand. Couldn't find him. He said, I'm sorry. We just can't keep wasting time. We're looking and looking and looking, trying to find your guy. I can't find him. He said, we're going to have to go with the guy that Jerry Rosen, the agent, has, who represents J. Carroll Nash and Lon Chaney. <laughs> he went ahead to ask him about who his guy was. Turned out to be Angelo Rosito. <laughs> it's very funny. And Angelo then did several films for us, and he was great. Uh, you know, I just, I love him in pictures with Lugosi, like Spooks Run Wild and The Corpse Vanishes, monogram horror pictures like that. I love those films. And so the opportunity to have him in the film, give him a good part with a lot of dialogue, it's just wonderful. So if... if if these films made no money, if, if they did nothing, if nobody ever saw them, at least I had some fun, you know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. Like, um, obviously, you worked with um, famous film monsters and Forrest Jackman. You worked with, you know, I said you are a film fan, which I feel, you know, was still kind of new uh, back in the 50s and 60s. And now I feel it's gotten even bigger. How does it feel to look at the film fandom as it's grown over the years to encompass superhero films and, 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 and well, I, I love film fandom because first of all, that's what I am a fan. So I never considered myself a professional. I always considered myself a fan and, uh, people were always making fun of me when I was at college. I was running horror films there. Uh, the newspaper came out against me. <laughs> Sam Sherman is ruining the quality of this college by running the, all these horror films and uh, it was not appreciated in those years and one of my professors he called me a foof I said what's that it sounded like an insult it wasn't an insult it was F-O-O-F friend of old films <laughs> foof I said you're a foof and I, I guess it was a compliment but it didn't sound like it. Anyway, the point is that that's what I always considered myself, to be a fan and a collector and collecting posters, still 16-millimeter films, all that kind of thing. And I always felt that's what I was, a fan. And So I got to be a pretty good film editor, writer, and 
producer and I could do some directing. I do a lot of things, but uh, I always consider myself a fan first. So when I meet fellow fans like yourself and others, uh, I just feel I'm in my element. It's just what I love. And um, people would, you know, if they didn't understand it, they would minimize it, but it was always my great hope that fandom would begin to take off and it would be accepted and uh, we fans wouldn't be made fun of or minimized. You know what I mean? Definitely. And now, your contemporaries were sort of Roger Corman and, and Larry Cohen, other great directors and producers at the time. And Larry Cohen just passed away, but he had a documentary recently, and Corman is still around. How does it? Do you remember kind of running into those guys back in the day, and how it feels well, to still be around I, with I them? Well, I met Roger Corman on the set of uh, The Raven. Fari Ackerman took mm. me there at the suggestion of Alex Gordon, who was a friend of ours, who was a producer, and it was the last day of shooting. And uh, I just met Roger Corman briefly there, but I've gotten to know him later years. Roger is of a previous generation to me. He started earlier, he mm. started in the 50s, he, you know, been around for quite a long time, and uh, he is the uh, the king of exploitation movies, the king of drive-in movies, he really is, and he invented so many things, he's such a good director, and he's a nice fellow, nice, nice people, he and his wife. And um, I've gotten to know a lot of people, you mentioned Larry Cohen, well, I went to City College with him. I knew him oh, very wow. well. And we we had the, the production course together, writing courses together. And he was a young fellow, but a little older than myself. And he uh, he was saying, I, I want to write. He was more of a writer than a filmmaker. That was his big thing, writing. And um, so he was saying, I'm going to send scripts around. I'm going to do this. Who would have that nerve? But he did send a script around, and Gunsmoke bought it for the network series of Gunsmoke. I couldn't believe it. But he was a great writer and a great idea man. And uh, all the years that passed, after school, I never saw him again. I never talked to him again. And I had some idea that somehow he moved out to Hollywood. He kind of quote-unquote, gone Hollywood, <laughs> that he was a big shot with the networks and all that. It wouldn't be interested in anybody from film school or anything like that. And my little pictures that I was involved with. So um, Chris Pajali, who's a writer and historian, was interviewing Larry Cohen, and he knew my background with him. And he said, uh, well, Larry, have you seen Sam Sherman lately? And... Larry said, no, I haven't seen him in years. What's he done? He had no idea hmm. that I was even in the industry. <laughs> it was amazing. I'm thinking, he's thinking, well, he's big major studio guy and I'm not doing much of anything. It wasn't true. So um, he said, here, get my number, give it to Sam. I want to talk to him. Well, I called him up. He was so happy to talk to me. He was so nice. And so, um, what should I say, uh, similar in thinking about a lot of things. It just was beautiful. And so uh, we were kidding around, talking, and things we did in school, and this and that and the other thing. And I couldn't believe that there were people I knew from those days. He didn't know them. Alan Hyme, who I went to school with. 
He's the head of the Film Editors Union, won the Academy Award for All That Jazz, nominated oh, wow. for Lenny and Network. He's one of the top editors in the industry. I said, well, well, you're in L.A., you must see Alan Heim all the time. No, who's Alan Heim? He didn't even know him. <laughs> so I guess Larry was just focused on whatever he was doing and didn't know what happened to the rest of us, but I was on a long call with him a couple of times. I told him some of these things. He was so interested. He says, I'm going to be coming to the East Coast very soon. We've got to spend the whole day. We've got to do this, that, and the other thing. They got sick and passed away. Hmm. What a sad thing. Through all those years, I could have had a beautiful friend like that from school, and uh, I blame myself for not reaching out to him. But he's a great, great fellow. Beautiful. What a beautiful guy. And uh, I'll tell you what I believe. All we really have are friends and people that we are in contact with. I'm a great people person. We say, well, what do you like besides being a fan and a collector? I love having friends. I love. I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends. And, you know, like I'm meeting you now, new friends. Strangers, just new friends you're just meeting. And you meet people and... You know, a lot of people have similar interests, and we enjoy that. So I, I go places, and if I'm at a convention or someplace, and somebody meets me, or they just call me. They're usually people who have similar interests, and they're saying, oh, Sam Sherman, pop, 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 pop. And they just uh, love to talk about things and love to get together, and we enjoy that. Or come over and screen old movies, stuff like that. Now, you're bringing back some of your classic films uh, to the drive-in cinemas this summer. Uh, where did that idea come from, and why do you think this is the right moment for a resurgence of drive-ins? Well, it came about through a dream I had, not a dream literally, but a thought, that I would love to bring some of these pictures back to drive-in theaters. It was just an idea I had. I'm saying, I always had fun when our pictures would play at a drive-in and I'd go to see the picture there because you had the drive-in experience buying popcorn, hot dogs, sitting in the car, whatever. Kids running around, all kinds of crazy things. And uh, my wife Linda and I went to see um, a screening of um, Cinderella 2000 and um, we went to it at a drive-in. I think it was the Turnpike Drive-In in East Brunswick, New Jersey, no longer there, mm. but replaced by a housing complex. And uh, there were some uh, young men, I call them kids, but they weren't young kids, running around. And uh, they were running around the drive and while the picture was playing, and they came and jumped on the hoods of cars. <laughs> they were running, and they jumped onto the hood of one car, jumped over to the hood of the other car, and uh, then they ran somewhere else, and blah, blah, blah. My wife is, is upset. She says, oh, they're going to damage this. Look, look, they just jumped on the car. I said, oh, don't worry about it. Let them jump all they want. We're the only ones sitting in these cars who financially participates in this screening. So they dent the car, we'll pay for it. What's the big deal? Just let them have fun. Part of the experience. <laughs> and you're kicking it off with um, Dracula versus Frankenstein why that one specifically 
Well, you know, that's kind of iconic. <laughs> when I got that idea of Dracula versus Frankenstein, which was revising a film we had started as The Bloodseekers, um, I knew that these were cult elements that not only I liked, but that the fans liked. Frankenstein monster, Count Dracula, using Cheney, using Nash, and also uh, having a great classic composer of horror music, uh, William Lava, do my score, who's a friend of mine. And he passed away before he finished the film. I just couldn't keep repeating the same music throughout the film. So I knew Joe Gershenson, head of music at Universal, and we got uh, music that we licensed from him, from Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is great music that every horror fan knows and loves. I figured that'll be good. <laughs> so we put that in, and uh, when that music comes on, maybe not everybody knows where it came from, but they recognize that it ties more in to the classic era. And um, I felt that would give it a more of a cult spin. So between the monsters, the actors, the music, all the gimmicks, some of the dialogue, it, it created a kind of a, a classic feel, and uh, people like or remember it. Now, people who have never seen the film, they still would be interested in Dracula versus Frankenstein. What does that mean? It reminds you of House of Frankenstein, Abbott Costello Meet Frankenstein, which was the film that influenced me with all this type of material. And um, I, I felt that would be a good thing to kick off our, our roadshow to the drive-ins of our classic films, because we have those all restored in HD, and uh, people would get a kick out of it. And so this be across the country? I'm hoping you make it out to California, where I live. Well, I call it a rollout, and uh, we're going to try to do that. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, we just got caught in this pandemic, horrible virus thing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, everything we're talking about, about drive-ins, is coming into focus. Drive-ins saying, yeah, we'd like to be open. Can't go to the indoor theaters. They're closed. And... The studios don't have products, they're closed, and blah, blah, blah. But we've got all these films and digital media restored that could be run on drive-ins. Uh, why not? Now, my friend David Searing, I mentioned him as one of the heads of AMC Network, he's got a company called Drive-In Sanity <laughs> Films. Now, you couldn't, you couldn't ask for anything better than that. Drive-In Sanity Films. Now, he's the biggest fan and and uh, promoter of drive-ins and their classic movies and all that sort of thing. So we discussed this, and he said, yeah, we've got to go and go back to the drive and do this. And that. So he's the one that's been pushing this, uh, and I, you know, I felt the same way about it. I just think it's great. And I know uh, over the years, we occasionally uh, went to the Benji's drive-in, to the Becky's drive-in, places like that around the country where we'd have a classic drive-in movie night and uh, my wife and daughter and myself would go there and we'd have our films run, some films for that evening. Sometimes we were there till 5 in the morning and uh, we always got a big kick out of it. It was always a lot of fun. And uh, the drive-ins, the thing about drive-ins are they're kind of a, 
uh, more than a 3D experience, they're kind of a 4D experience because you've got the film on the screen, you've got the concessions, you've got kids running around, people coming in, cars turning their lights on, they're going out, they're coming in. All these things are happening at once, and uh, it's kind of a um, multi-dimensional experience that uh, the audience participates in. Nobody ever said that. I don't think they did, but I've always felt that way. When you go to a regular indoor theater, mostly the picture comes on and people are sitting there. Maybe they'd go out to the bathroom or go and get a popcorn or something, but uh, <laughs> driving, there's always some action going on. Some places, uh, I'm thinking about people who spread out blankets. They're on the, they're not even in their car. They're mm -hmm. outside on a blanket. Yeah. Or they brought chairs and they're sitting outside and and there's all kinds of different sound. There's regular speakers on posts. There's a FM coming through your radio. I mean, various different systems. And then there were uh, drive-ins that played movies in the rain and they gave out a hood that went over your windshield so you could still be there in the rain. And the funniest story about that, well, I mean, many funny stories, uh, we had Satan Sadus, a uh, motorcycle film, which had played, it played first run, and then uh, the tragedy of the Manson killings of Sharon Tate, uh, and we did a very tasteless campaign for Satan Sadus that showed certain similarities. Well, I didn't even know at the time, or maybe I did know, that uh, Charles Manson had been on the set once where Al was filming, and Al threw him off. So there was some weird connection, hmm. and we kind of tied into that. And uh, that was a rather strange situation, because I ended up uh, going to a radio show in New York called The Barry Farber Show on AM Radio OR, and talking about movies, media, that case of that, those murders and how all these things tied in and uh, I, I met a very pretty girl at that studio I just saw her, she was very pretty and her name was Linda and I just saw her, she, well, what a beautiful girl, I just noticed her as I came in and then I sat down to do the, um, the interview and I was there from 10 till 1 in the morning and every once in a while I turned around to see was she's still there but I, I was not uh, a big ladies' man where I just walk over to anybody and introduce myself cold. But she came over to me after the show. And uh, I thought that was quite interesting. She said, I thought you were very good on the show. I was enjoying what you were saying, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that was kind of it. Then the next day, I'm saying, well, who was that girl? Maybe I can talk to her. And that was kind of over. But uh, we've been married for 50 years. That's a story from that. So <laughs> on Satan Sadus, we had three marriages. Al married Regina Carroll. We met on that picture. Um, uh, I'm trying to think who else. I married Linda on my, on my side. And uh, uh, one other one, uh, Jackie, the, uh, the leading lady of the picture, married uh, director who worked for Al. So uh, it was very odd, but the, the point of the matter is that uh, how these things affect your life, 
my whole life is movies. Everything to do with movies. It just goes on and on. It's amazing. And you're working on your memoir right now, right? So yeah, I'm sure you'll have more stories for that. Yeah, I've I've done most of it. It's about 650 pages. It'll have to be cut down. And I'm calling it When Dracula Met Frankenstein, uh, mainly because that's uh, the thing we're most well-known for, and those are well-known names. But there's more to it than that. But it'd be interesting to see what form it eventually takes. I have a lot of interesting stories. I don't know if everything will be in that book, or maybe I could do a second book. But I had a lot of interesting experiences that didn't really involve the company and uh, involved interviewing well-known actors, people like John Wayne, who I got to know Mm. over a period of years, and he was very nice to me. I met him at a bar. I, I wanted to interview him for a magazine, and I couldn't see him. He went to a theater in New York to promote a movie, and he was mobbed by the people, and he got up and he left. And uh, he was there signing autographs, and the people pressed forward, forward, forward. So he was pinned against the wall, and he stood up and he said, let's not all lose our minds, okay? <laughs> and he got up, and he walked out, left the lobby of this Broadway theater. But he was <laughs> PR enough that in his pocket he had pre-signed little cards, and he was handing them out to people as he walked out. He wasn't so angry that that was it. But I'm saying, gee, I'll never get to interview him. This is the end of that. So I called my friend Joe Franklin, who's a TV host, who sent me over there, and I told him what happened. He said, oh, these things happen, you know, you just forget about it. Who knows, maybe the next time. Well, I never believed in the next time. So I said, where could I go? Call United Artists, his distributor, and called them. And they said, well, go over to his hotel. Maybe you'll meet him at his hotel. And I went over there, sat there all afternoon, until he came walking in and went to the bar to have a drink. And he's sitting there, and I just walked over to him. I said, uh, pardon me, Mr. Wayne, would you consider this an intrusion if I wanted to just sit down and talk to you for a little bit? He said, hell no. Pull up a stool and sit down. There it was. And so, you know, now I I got past stage one. What am I going to do? And I brought with me a 1934 poster of one of his early films. Go for my second punch. Take it out. What do you think of that? Oh, my God. Where'd you get that thing? I said, well, I'm a collector of your early stuff. Blah, blah, blah. And he turned around and held it up, unrolled it, and showed it to the bartender. What do you think of that, young, handsome guy? (laughs) (laughs) We sat there for about an hour talking. In the meantime, the editor of Variety, uh, uh, what was his name? Abel Green came in. He wanted to talk to John Wayne, but I was sitting next to him, and on the other side was his son. So he couldn't get close to him. (laughs) They went ahead and sat to my left, and he grabbed a stool, and boom, he couldn't get on it right, and he ended up on the floor. <laughs> and John Wayne was cracking up and cracking. <laughs> Guess them variety men don't know how to stride a stool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt very bad about it, thinking, oh, I've instigated this. 
Miss <laughs> Abel Green, the head of variety, big man in the industry, and due to me, he's on the floor. You know, I don't know what to do. So I extend my hand. Here's the Green. I'll help you up. So I helped him up, and then I finished. There's nothing more. I was talked out with John Wayne, and uh, I said, "Here, Mr. Green, here, take my stool." He said, right next to Mr. Wayne and talk to him. He said, oh, thank you. I got him right in. I let him sit on us. He wouldn't fall again. (laughs) (laughs) But over time, I got to see John Wayne half a dozen times, and finally I got to have a big interview with him at his hotel from 8 in the morning till 1 in the afternoon. Nobody else. Just us talking about old 30s movies. You know, not just ooh and ah, John Wayne, but I knew a lot about his early pictures, about making films and serials and small westerns. And and uh, he looked at me and says, how do you know all this? I said, well, I'm a film historian. I guess he never heard of film historian at that time. I said, what do you do? I said, well, I collect films, and you collect the films too? <laughs> how many of my films have you got? I said, well, I've got this one, that one, that one. Uh, at the time, I had 14 films of his. Maybe today, I've got 80 films of his. 14 films? You got 14? Which ones are they? I don't, this one, that one. He said, I don't have any of those. How do you have those? <laughs> I said, wait, let me explain something to you. You're a studio guy. You're a 35-millimeter man. You're thinking everything is 35. This is called 16-millimeter. It's a narrow film used for television and running in clubs and things like that, what you need to do is to get a 16-millimeter projector and go to the studios. They have a lot of these old prints they're throwing away, and they'll give you those old prints. And uh, yeah, have your secretary call them. It was my mistake, because he, he, never, he never went to that. Eventually, after he passed away, he had some 35-millimeter projectors that were auctioned on eBay, but he never had a collection of his early films or anything else like that. He never just got the idea of Hollywood, big people, big stars, producers, they have a screening room in their houses with real, usually a projection booth with 35 millimeter projectors and they hire projectionists from the union to come in to run a show and they give a party. Now, are you familiar with George O'Brien by any chance? George O'Brien. Um, I don't think so. He no. was a big star of westerns, silent movies, great, great pictures. Worked with John Ford on many of them, mm. and worked in John Wayne pictures. He's in uh, several films with John Wayne, uh, like uh, picture like one, any one of these pictures in the late forties. And uh, he was a great friend of his, and he was in. The military. He'd been in uh, three or four wars: World War One, World War Two, Korea, and Vietnam. He was in the Navy. He was a career man. He's a great guy, and I got to be friendly with him. I invited George O'Brien and his daughter, and a lot of my friends and fans, and my wife and myself, all of my office, to screen some old pictures of George O'Brien's. And um, he came over, and uh, I had a screening room. It screened into my office, 35 millimeter or 16. And George said, uh, Sam, you don't have to worry about it. I'll go for the operator. Well, what he meant was he wasn't going to the phone company. 
for an operator. He was going to pay for the projections uh-huh. that I'd have to bring in to run the films. And I said, uh, George, we don't uh, call for projectionists to come in and run films. I run everything here myself, 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter. I don't have to pay any cost, and you certainly are not going to pay a nickel. You're our guest here. And he said, oh, that's wonderful. Duke would like that. He was talking about John yeah. Wayne. So I said, uh, maybe you could explain that. I knew what he meant, but I wanted him to explain it to me. I said, uh, why would he like that? He said, because Duke doesn't like to spend money. <laughs> <laughs> so there it was. You know, that's 10 years after I talked to John Wayne. There's his friend George O'Brien at my office. And um, I'm thinking, yeah, John Wayne would have been great to have 16-millimeter projector, 16-millimeter prints, and I'm kind of blaming myself. I know John Wayne. Why don't I call his office and say, yeah, I'll get some prints in for nothing, show him how to get a projector, and he can have his own collection there. But I never did it. You know, it's just too many things going on. Uh, I guess I could have uh, thought about it years later. I guess I could have called John Wayne and said, uh, have you got any jobs for me out there on the coast? <laughs> do anything? Well, what would you do? I, well, I can edit, I can this, I can that. But I didn't. I never. I, I just didn't think I'd gotten a friendship with him. I didn't want to take advantage of his friendship. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't want John Wayne to think that I'm interested in getting to know him for some selfish reason. I wanted to interview him. Because I liked that early period. I was a big fan of his, that's all. Nothing I want personally from him. But when I was in film school, Otto Preminger was there. Oh, wow. And uh, he was addressing our our class, and he was talking about what a great film industry it is, and it's great to do this. And and I raised my hand, I'm in the audience, and I said, Mr. Preminger, yeah, this is a great industry, but it's impossible for an outsider to get into it. How does one get into such a great industry? And he said, who are you? I said, my name's Sam Sherman. What are you doing? I'm a film student here. But he said, come up on the stage here and talk to me after I'm done with my uh, thing. So I went up and talked to him. I was very negative. I was adversarial about the <laughs> industry, and telling him all this stuff. And he says, uh, well, I'm going to be making a picture uh, in six months why don't you come out there and work on it? It's going to be shot on a boat in Europe. If you want to be in this industry, you know, I'm doing this. Well, I got his, took his card, but I never called him. But I wondered in years later, how might my career have been different had I gone to work for Otto Preminger and worked on big major pictures? My wife said, well, you wouldn't have met me. You would have met some gal in Hollywood, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, uh, it's just really true. How would your life change if you didn't make a right turn here or meet this one or make a left turn there or whatever? But um, I wondered, what was that picture that he was making at that time that I might have worked on? So I checked it out. I looked and looked. It turned out to be Bonjour Tristesse, starring David Niven and Gene Seberg. And Gene Seberg had been in St. Joan. And she was a protege, quote-unquote, of Otto Preminger, and he was building her up as a star. 
And I'm thinking, what would my job have been? Very <laughs> simple. I'd be the Gene Seberg Wrangler. The Wrangler is <laughs> the one that handles the stock sure. of a Western. Now, I'd be the Gene Seberg Wrangler. So at 8 in the morning, Sam, where is Gene? Why isn't she in makeup already? Why didn't we get her new wardrobe to her? Well, she said she wanted to sleep in this morning. That's your job. Get her out. Get her over here. You know, he wants to be on good terms with her. I'll be the heavy. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm saying, is that what I wanted to be, the Gene Seberg Wrangler? You know what I mean? Yeah. I would have been glad to do some flunky job for John Wayne. I kind of thought alike on different subjects with John Wayne, but... I don't know if I wanted to be the Gene Seberg Wrangler, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so that was my interview with uh, film producer Sam Sherman, and uh, he was really great to talk with, very friendly, very fun. And uh, if you're interested in seeing his films in the drive-in this year, uh, they're kicking things off on May 26th at the Circle Drive-In in Dixon City, Pennsylvania. Uh, with the screening of Dracula versus Frankenstein. So if you're, if you're out there, Pennsylvania fans, definitely don't miss that night. And hopefully it'll expand to more drive-ins around the country, and perhaps it'll even get here to California, the Mission Tiki drive-in. We'd love to we'd love to have them out here. Uh, I think this is a great idea of the drive experience, which if you haven't been to a drive-in ever or in a long time, definitely check them out if you can. There are drive-ins across the country that are open right now. And, you know, be safe, of course, but it's a really fun experience. It's a real nostalgic trip to drive up to a parking lot and watch a movie on the big screen while the audio comes through your car radio. And I think this is a really fun idea to embrace that experience with some old classic horror grindhouse movies. So thank you again to Mr. Sherman. And as always, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Give us a like or a share or retweet. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, find all our episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. But until next time, I'm Connor. Thank you for listening.